if I had to title Jonah 3, I would title it Washed Up. Washed Up, and that's basically uh, how the tail end of chapter 2 kind of starts. Jonah was washed up. Made some observations the first week that the book of Jonah is about a gracious God extending compassion to rebellious people. The book of Jonah is not about a rebellious prophet. It's not about uh, some renegade sailors. It's not even about a wicked city named Nineveh. The book of Jonah is all about a gracious God who extends compassion to people living in their rebellion. And so the relentless love of God that extends radical grace and just a redeeming love. I'll tell you this, I'm a, I'm a recipient of it and I need it desperately every day. Anybody like that in here? Anybody like that? Anybody need just redeeming grace every day? Radical love showered down on you every day? I mean, none of us have it figured out. We're all in process and man, we need help from God. So Jonah chapter 2 verse 10, I want you to hear this. It says the Lord ordered the fish to spit up Jonah on the beach and it did. Now if you go back and read the narrative, God sent the fish. The the fish swallowed Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. And then you get to the end of chapter 2 and it says God told the fish, that's enough, let him go, spit him up. So Jonah was vomited up on the beach. Chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, which is an identity statement there. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation. He said, in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and the nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. And who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we do not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, their sin and their evil, then God relenting, uh, relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. I want to share with you four observations as we jog through Jonah chapter 3. First observation would be this. Refuse to empower your past failure. Refuse to empower your past failure. Now here's what we don't know. Between chapter 2 verse 10 and chapter 3 verse 1, from the time Jonah is spit up on the beach and then the word of the Lord comes a second time to Jonah, we don't know how much time had elapsed, if you will, in there. In my sanctified imagination, I see Jonah laying on the beach for quite a few days. And he's probably thinking, dude, you look like hell and you smell like crap. Look at you. What a mess you are. Look at you. Nobody wants to smell you, see you, be around you. You ever been around people with bad body odor and you thought, man, God, help me here. <laughs> right? I mean, you want to talk about some bad body odor? Jonah reeks. And something in my sanctified imagination tells me that Jonah is laying there going, you're washed up. Your life is ruined. You can never be used again. 
You blew it. You forfeited your assignment. Look at you. And I think so many people live life stranded based on what they did. Anybody in here ever felt that way? Man, how could God ever use somebody like me? Look at what I've done. Look at where I've been. Look at the way I've done life. I think a lot of us get stranded and we do life looking in the rear view, saying, look at my past instead of the windshield going, look at my future. Some of us have empowered the sin and the shame and the guilt and the filth of yesterday so much that we're living just in bondage of defeat. Can I tell you something? Learn from your past. Learn from your sin. Learn from your rebellion. But listen to me. Your past cannot define you unless you empower it to do so. My past has been used by God to develop me into the person I am, not to define me and who I am and where I'm going. And I think so many of us, we get stuck there. We get stuck and we go, oh, oh, oh I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a prisoner to my past. And I go, no, 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 no. You're not a prisoner. You're a product of your past. Your past is to be used as a springboard, not a hammock. God says, don't lay in it. I want to do something with you. You're going to have to get up and start moving. Here's what I've concluded. God's grace is greater than your guilt. Some of us, when we do the math of the equation, we look and we say, uh, my guilt is greater than God's grace. And if you ever start to live there, you will live in habitual defeat. You'll never get back up. You'll never get on your feet. You'll never move in a healthy direction. Some of us have concluded that God's grace is greater than our guilt. When I started really flourishing in my walk, started walking out of the bondage into freedom, it started, it started with this. Your grace is greater. Your grace is greater. So instead of running to God and telling God how big my problems were, I started running to my problems and telling my problems how big my God is. When we're able to look at whatever we've done, wherever we've been, and to say, my God trumps that. Who I was is not who I am, and it's not who I'm becoming. Praise God for forgiveness. Praise God for pursuing us. But I want to encourage you, no matter what's going on in your life today, as you sit here this morning, refuse to empower your past failures. They're not going to get you anywhere. Learn from them. Redeem those, those moments to say, you know what? Praise God. It was good for me that I was afflicted and struggled so I could learn the ways of God. But I will not embrace my past and empower my past any longer as being my definition. Come on. Point two would be this. Embrace your second chance. Embrace your second chance. Look at the verse right there. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Anybody in here ever needed a second time? A second chance? When you study the pages of Scripture, it is replete with human failure. Many of the servants of God made so many just brutal mistakes and sin so greatly and you go and God used them again yeah there was collateral damage there was consequence but God used them again I started thinking through that like Noah got drunk 
And God used him still to lead a people and to lead a movement. I, I, I look in this room and I've had conversations with people that have gotten drunk multiple times and they're like, how could God ever use me? He's going to sober you up and get your heart right. Then he'll use you again when you surrender to him. Anybody, anybody need a second chance has been drunk before? Abraham battled fear. You start to look at Abraham and they're, they're cruising down and all of a sudden they're about to be captured and they're like, Who, who's this girl with you? He's like, oh, 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 she's my sister. No, Sarah's your wife, homie, but because of the fear in your soul, you were afraid that they were going to kill you. And some of us sit in here today and we've been in captivity to fear. I mean, you think about Jacob. He was a liar. I mean, you ask Isaac when he blessed his boy and stole the blessing from Esau. What happened? He was a liar. Rahab, she was a prostitute and ran a brothel. But yet she gets ink in the Bible as being somebody that God used. Samson was a womanizer. Mr. GQ with his cool looking locks and hair. All these muscles tearing stuff up. What was your thorn in the flesh? He was a womanizer. David jacked it up, had an affair with Bathsheba, killed her husband. And people say, man, I love reading the Psalms. I'm like, you know who wrote most of them? Yeah, a guy that had a second chance, a guy that got the gospel. Moses murdered her dude and lived on the backside of the desert in wilderness for 40 years. Yet God used him uh, writing the Ten Commandments and other things. And he's like, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to give you a second chance. Elijah was suicidal. Elijah calls down fire from heaven against the prophets of Baal. And what happened to homie? Jezebel shows up and freaks him out and he wants to tap. He wants to kill himself. I read the story of a woman of the well, man, the Samaritan woman in the New Testament. She was married five times, shacked up with another dude. And she gets the gospel and runs back down into her city and says, y'all got to come see this man. He told me everything about me and he still loves me. Our God is a God of the second chance, and the fourth chance, and the tenth chance, and the hundredth chance. Come on. So I, I, want, I want to say something to you today. God is not through with me yet, and God is not done and through with you yet. You may feel like you need to be on the shelf because of your rebellion. God's not done with you yet. I was thinking about this. What about if the first time you heard the gospel was the only time you got to hear the gospel? How many of us would be sitting in here today? Man, I had people share the gospel with me as a little boy, and I'm like, uh-uh. Then by the time I started going through teenage years, I'm like, hmm, uh-uh. And I needed a second chance and a tenth chance and a hundredth chance. I don't know how many people that are sitting in this room right now, the first time you heard it, you violently repented, responded to it, received it, and you've been walking in holiness ever since. <laughs> if there's somebody like that, I would love to sit down and talk to you, you liar, and listen to your denial. <laughs> Come on. But you know what we oftentimes do? We get extended that second chance and that tenth chance and that hundredth chance. And all of a sudden we're going, well, I've been praying for my sister. If you shared the gospel, well, I shared it with her one time. Oh, so you think she's going to get it one time when it took you 500 times. And you know what we do? We get out of the game. We quit loving people because we really didn't love them in the first place. 
We were just trying to eliminate our guilt, get them off our mind. But I'm telling you right now, God is a God of second chance. God is not uh, harsh with us. God is kind and slow in moving with us, as he says in Scripture. He's not willing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. I don't know about y'all, but I'm part of that all group, and so is everybody else I've ever met in my life. God wants all to come. But when God gives the second chance, let me say this to you. When God gives you that second chance, don't have a callous heart. Don't harden your heart. When God gives the second chance, we need to carpe diem. We need to seize the moment. We need to redeem it when God gives us a second chance. And we find that to be true even with the life of Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, chapter 1. I want you to go to Nineveh. Uh-uh. Jonah goes down to Joppa. He buys him a ticket for a boat selling towards Tarshish. And he heads in the opposite direction. Chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I want you to go to Nineveh. Verse 3 reads, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. <laughs> But Jonah had repented. As Trevor broke it down last week in Jonah chapter 2, he repented. He turned. And it is mandatory, listen, for every person sitting here today, it is mandatory that all of us repent. Repentance is an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. It's not just this one-time spiritual transaction. It's an ongoing thing every day. And when you truly repent, what you're going to do is this. It will manifest in three ways. There will be a change of attitude, there will be a change of affection, and there will be a change of action. What are you saying? When a person truly repents, which means they turn from their sin, they plug into God, plug into Jesus, affection, attention, and actions change. There's going to be a change of mind. That's what I give my attention to. There's going to be a change of affection. That's what I give my heart to. And there's going to be a change of action. That is the will, the steps, the strides, everything I do in life. You will not experience the goodness of the gospel and the grace of the gospel if you don't repent. All of us need to repent. All of us need to be turning from our sin, from our filth, and from our shame, and we need to be turning to the Lord. Third point, follow through on your original assignment. Follow through on your original assignment. Go to Nineveh. I want you to cry out against that great city. Here's what I've recognized in my own life is I've dealt with other people as well. Do you know when most people screw it up and really fall in and stay in sin? When they violate these two things. Be where you're supposed to be. Do what you're supposed to do. Most of us get into bad playgrounds with bad playmates, and before we know it, we start to embrace bad play toys because we're not where we're supposed to be. When you go back and study the life of David, it was the time of year kings go out to battle. David stayed at the crib. David, what, what happened when you hooked up with Bathsheba? I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. You start to look at Jonah. Jonah, what's the, what's the deal? Well, I, I'm supposed to be in Nineveh, and I'm supposed to be doing this proclamation thing God called me to. Oh, really? So you would never have smelt like you did and looked like you did and went where you did over the last bit if you would have been obedient. Here's the point. Follow through on your original assignment. My buddy Walter down in Noonan, where I grew up, 
I come to faith in Christ. Now, I just want to know Jesus. Walter puts his arm around me. He was my first mentor, Paul, in my life. So Walter and I are hanging out, and Walter's married to Deborah, and they've got an older son, and she's pregnant with twins, and he's telling me about him and Deborah. He goes, Deborah and I were married, we were divorced, and then we got married again. <laughs> really, how'd that happen? Well, I, I was a hellraiser. Oh, you were? Yeah, I had acid, mushroom, all this kind of stuff in my system constantly, drinking heavy. And Deborah and I got married, and she said she'd had enough. So she left me, and I don't blame her. And in my spin, out of control, I continued to raise hell, and I hooked up with another girl I just met and married her, and we were married for about three days. Three days. Yeah. Because on about the third day, I got saved. I got introduced to the gospel, and I fell on my face, and I cried out to the Lord, and I asked the Lord to save me. And when I came up, I was a new man. And I flushed all the acid and mushrooms and, and marijuana and everything down the drain. And I'm like, I got to get right. I got to get right. And I told her, I can't be married to you. And so I wasn't married to her. And over a few days, I went back out to Deborah's house. And I said, Deborah, I'm supposed to be married to you. And I messed it up. I know I have. But I, I got to tell you, I've come to know Christ. And, and I've been praying. I've only been praying for three days. But God says, you're my wife. And she watched him over a period of time. And he went back to his original assignment and got it right. And I was looking at that going, what a trippy story. Now, I don't know what your original assignment is. But for Walter, it was that. For Jonah, it was Nineveh. But some of us are sitting here and God has spoken to our hearts. Here's what I want you to do. We haven't done it. And some people will, will say this to me, uh, I just ain't heard from the Lord in a long time. Well, the last time you heard from him, what did he say? <laughs> Come on. I just ain't heard from the Lord in a long time. Well, he ain't stuttering. He ain't shy. What have you done that has jacked up communication? A lot of us need to go back to the original assignment and get it right. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Crowd against that great city, all that evil and wickedness. Shh, shh, listen to this. The message that brought revival in Nineveh. Right, right here, verse 4. The message that brought revival in Nineveh. Now, we read through it. It wasn't just one neighborhood repenting. It wasn't just one family that repented. The whole city of Nineveh repented. From the king all the way down, everybody. I want you to go, and I want you to proclaim a message I'm going to give you. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was your message? That's the message I want you to tell Nineveh. Hold on. This implies that when we get with God, God may be putting a message on our heart that is very contradictory to what we think we're even supposed to share. What am I supposed to tell those people? Tell them in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it? What about the four spiritual laws? What about the Romans road? Shouldn't I quote the Beatitudes? I mean, is there not the 10... Listen, homie, I got your attention. 
40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Can I tell you what it was? It was a message of judgment and wrath about to come down on Nineveh. It was a message of judgment and wrath. God loves you. It's got a wonderful plan. No! 40 days and you're going to be toast. 40 days and you're going to be toast? Where is the God is love? It was a message of wrath and judgment. The devil will convince us even today in our modern culture. Don't miss it. The devil will convince us that if you preach a message about sin and about God's wrath and about God's judgment, you're going to turn people off. You're going to hurt their feelings and they'll never come back again. Every revival that you study throughout human history was birthed out of the proclamation of preaching against sin and talking about God's judgment. Can I tell you something? I would have never known that I needed a Savior if I hadn't have realized that I was a sinner. I didn't come to Jesus to make me better. I came to Jesus because I was lost and I needed to be found. I came to Jesus after slamming that last Budweiser on the pavement at 12.30 in the morning, thinking if I were to die the way I'm living, I'm afraid I would bust hell wide open. Why? Because of wrath. God's not going to deal lightly with sin. And the fallacy of certain churches today is, We don't talk about sin in our church. Well, if you don't talk about sin, you can't talk about the cross. And if you don't talk about the cross, you can't talk about the Savior. And if you can't talk about the Savior, what are you doing? What separated me and alienated me from God? Sin. What did I need? I needed the cross of Christ. People go, really? Yes. And when you study the cross, the cross is a bloody message. It's a message of brutality. It's a message of murder, of humiliation, being stripped. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, I have people say, man, I don't know about that. Well, in our attempt to be relevant with culture, we must stay reverent and preach the cross. Let me say it again. I will not sacrifice reverence for relevance. And I think so many people have watered down the message of God and have reduced it. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. What's the message? God is love. No. Tell them in 40 days, they're about to be smoked. Tell them in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. What happened? They all repented. They all responded. Now, let me show you a fourth principle. Anticipate that others will respond. (laughs) Anticipate that others will respond. I refuse to empower my past failure. I want to embrace my second chance. I got to follow through on the original assignment. 
But you've got to anticipate that others will respond. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. Did, did, did you get that? Did, did you get that? The book of Jonah is not about a rebellious prophet. The book of Jonah is not about a rebellious city. The book of Jonah is about a relentless, compassionate, tender God pursuing people. Now, notice, the text doesn't say the people recognize Jonah as a prophet. It doesn't say the people realized that Jonah had just spent three days wrestling with God. It doesn't say that Jonah had such great seminary training that the people were impressed with how he would articulate his statements. It says, then the people believed in God. What was the message about anyway? About knowing God, dealing with your sin, repenting, responding, turning to God. What happened? They believed in God. Who believed? The entire city believes. You know what I think one of our struggles is? Listen to me. I think one of our struggles oftentimes is we do not anticipate that others will respond. We go into it saying, they're just a drunk. They're calloused. They're hard. They don't want anything to do with it. So we go into it already anticipating that the person doesn't want it. It'd be like this. It'd be like you going to work saying, I'm praying about starting this Bible study at my work. You work with, let's say, 50 people. But then you follow up with this statement. But I just don't believe any of them will show up. Why start it then? Instead of saying, I'm starting a Bible study at my work this week. And I'm anticipating that everybody is going to show up to it. Well, guess how you're going to see people? You're going to see them through a, a lens of grace instead of a lens of rejection. Do you know you've got to anticipate a favorable outcome? But I think a lot of people go through, well, we'll go to marriage counseling, but it ain't going to work. Seriously? So we've already thrown the towel in. I want to learn to live with anticipation. When I walk in here this morning, we drive onto the grounds. I'm anticipating God doing a work in your life. I'm anticipating that God is wanting to transform you at a deeper level. We've got to be friends with these people on Jesse's high school baseball team. Barb has built a great relationship with this one girl. Started hanging out with her dad. I don't go to church. It's probably been 20 years since I've been, really. I hear you. I mean, I pray. I believe in God, Tim. Next game. How you doing? How was your fishing trip? It was good. We sat there for 20 minutes. I heard you went turkey hunting the other day. See anything? I did, man. I didn't get a good shot. Here's this card, man. Easter Sunday, I'd love to invite you. I appreciate it. Can I tell you something? At 9.05 a.m., a stinking dude who hadn't been in church in 20 years, he walks in and he goes, good morning. 
I was anticipating him coming. Came up at the end. I enjoyed that. I know you're in your 60s. Handle the music okay? I loved it. <laughs> you're an old rocker, aren't you? Don't tell anybody. Do you know what? Anticipate that people will respond. Why invite them if you don't think they're going to come? Why? Check it out. When God saw their deeds, their repentance, he withheld his judgment. When God saw their repentance, that they had turned from evil, they had turned from sin, he withheld his judgment. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say something to you in here today. A lot of people that walk in here week after week are still living under the wrath and judgment of God. You know why? Because they will not turn from their sin. They toy with the gospel. They flirt with the gospel. They want a God that will satisfy them and be a cosmic Santa that gives them what they want. But they're not willing to deal thoroughly with their sin. And they find themselves living in habitual defeat under sin because they won't repent. I am so thankful. I am so thankful that some 30 years ago when I violently repented and cried out to Jesus and started itemizing and specifically confessing my sin, I felt like that weightiness of his wrath and judgment started being removed. And I could breathe. And he goes, I love you. I'm for you. Now, we're not going to empower your past failure. I'm a God of second chance. You ran from me, big boy. But you can't hide. I'm faster than you are. Now, now, now listen. I want you to embrace the original assignment. Come to me and let me take the reins. That was the original assignment. And then God has led to more and more assignments. Now he says, anticipate that the people are going to respond. Anticipate that there are people here this morning that will repent of their sin. Anticipate that there are going to be people here that will respond to the good news of the gospel. Anticipate that people are going to give. They're going to serve. They're going to, they're going to go into this world and be salt and light for the kingdom. Expect it to happen. Anticipate that it will happen. That's what I'm anticipating with you today. Anticipate that they'll give. They'll invest in what you're talking about. So when we cast this vision weeks ago, let me tell you what God is laying on our hearts and where we're going. People have rallied together. I've anticipated you doing that. But when you, when you go out into your world, your own personal Nineveh, whatever that place is, that family member, that relationship is, that community is, anticipate that they will respond to the good news of the gospel. The gospel is too good to be true. Don't go in there already expecting rejection. Go in there saying they, they, they're going to believe in God. I met with a guy this week. He spent 180 days in jail. He's been coming here for the last couple of weeks. And I'm looking in his eyes on Wednesday as we meet for two hours. And can I tell you something? He's starting to really believe that God loves him, God forgives him, that he doesn't have to empower his past. He's starting to believe that the grace of God's gospel is enough for him. 
He came in here this morning. When he walked into my office on Wednesday, he walked in. If I'm going to shake hands with Chad. He walked in, shoulders tilted, and said, how you doing? I said, your body language sucks. You're living in so much guilt and shame, it's not even funny. He walked in this morning, standing in the lobby. He comes in, how you doing? The last three days have radically rocked me. I believe that God is for me and he loves me. I don't have to empower my past any longer. Yes.